Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. Well, Brad, guess what? We made it through another season of Silvacast. And at our age, or should I say your age, that's a real accomplishment. Wait, wait. It's your birthday today. <laughs> so... You are officially oh, older than me so today. I'm turning forty-five. Okay. Uh, well, you're, so what? No, you're old, Greg. You're <laughs> you're like you're like ancient, right? Um, yeah, like a whole three months older than you, or something well, like yeah, that. yeah. But that's it's a lifetime, you know. For certain for certain things, don't live even three months. So, okay, let's get off of this. All right. This topic All right. it's going down a wrong path. Yeah. So, what I wanted to ask you, Brad, was uh, this season, season three. Did you learn anything? So, you know, I, I. I've been thinking about season three, and I think we really had some cool guests on, and we had some really interesting discussions. Remember, we started back in January talking to Susan Stout about research management, collaborate. Yep. I think that's been really, really good. And I think some of the stuff we've done since, you know, talking about wood quality with uh, Jan Wiedenbeck, even the stuff where we talked about, like, uh, what do you call them? Oh, the slash walls, you know, trying to think about trying to be outside the box, do things a little different. I think I think it's been a really interesting year, and even some of the more recent stuff on carbon, or um, or even just on other things have been really good. Scarification been really good. Yeah. Well, you know what Albert Einstein said. What did Albert Einstein say? You don't know. Uh, he said a lot of things, Greg. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, he said when you stop learning, you start dying. So it's a good thing that you learn something new. Yeah. And, and I think this season has really allowed us to to recognize that we're always going to be learning about silviculture, no matter how how long we're studying this or who we who we talk to that's out there. There are always going to be surprises and new ideas that we're going to need to explore. Then I would say you'll be happy to learn that today on Silvacast, we're going to talk about one of those new ideas, or maybe it's a very old idea. We'll see. Over the Silvacast season, we try to bring you this mix of uh, field foresters and researchers from the very applied, like you said, scarification or slash walls to bigger picture issues. So talking about research management collaboratives, things like that. So for this last episode of season three, we're going to talk about one of those big picture topics, ecological silviculture. And joining us for this conversation are going to be Tony D'Amato from the University of Vermont and Brian Pollock from the U.S. Forest Service Northern Research Station. So Tony and Brian literally wrote the book on this subject and are co-authors of Ecological Silviculture, Foundations and Applications. Yep, I, this is going to be fantastic because I'm kind of a, a fanboy or groupie of these guys. I love their work and I've got my copy of their book right here. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're really fortunate, you know, here in Wisconsin, we've collaborated with them on some silviculture issues uh, from time to time. So this is going to be a fantastic conversation. Today's episode of Silvcast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns 
have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. All right. Welcome to Silvacast. Hi, Tony and Brian. It's good to see you guys again. Hi, you too. It's been a little while. Great to be back. We're really honored to have you guys on as guests today because uh, I'm always enamored with how much work and how much stuff you've done with forestry. So it's it's really cool you guys are here. And um, the topic today, you both uh, have recently written a book on the subject. So I'm showing it to our viewers here. <laughs> and we're a podcast, right, Greg? So, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that's right, Brad. Yeah, okay. So, I forgot. Yeah. So we know you. Uh, we're lucky enough that we both kind of uh, collaborate with you from time to time on different projects. And so that's really fun. But as far as our listeners, can you just tell us, you know, where you work and maybe what your role is, what your major role is there? So I'm a research ecologist with the USTA Forest Service. And I'm based in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. And I guess broadly, I, I work on forest management approaches that address sustainability, ecological sustainability of managed forests. And I'm uh, d- director of the forestry program and a professor of civil culture and applied forest ecology here at the University of Vermont. Um, and so in that role, I get to teach civil culture, which is a real joy of my, my life, as well as get to do a lot of research um, in collaboration with folks like Brian and others trying to understand how to sustain forests into the future, both for ecological purposes, but also thinking through how to adapt to change. And so I was also fortunate to be based in the Midwest for a long time at the University of Minnesota. And and, and Greg and Brad, I know you keep bringing me back in Silvercast <laughs> just to give give me the hard time you miss getting a given person when I was out there in, uh, uh, in the Lake States. No, we keep dragging you back, Tony. So hopefully you'll stay. So yeah, that's right. One of these times it's going to stick. You'll be like, wait, I yeah. can't get back. So yeah. Vermont sucks. I got to stay in Wisconsin or the Lake States. So. Right. I think we might have some university openings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things, Greg, we always talk about this and it's it's always fascinating how people got interested in forests and forestry and especially people with really, you know, rich careers in it. So how did you guys, what sparked your interest in, in forestry or forest management or ecology? I bet like many of us, I grew up wandering around in forests, and I just loved doing that. And especially, I like big trees. Uh, so that was sort of my introduction. But then when I got to graduate school, I was fortunate to have a PhD advisor that really knew a lot about the relationships between trees and plants and soils and geomorphology and really pushed us to think about forests as a as an ecosystem as opposed to a population of trees. So kind of the early stage and then the later stage that pushed me to where I'm at. Yeah, and I mean, similar uh, to Brian, certainly enjoyed uh, poking around the woods. I grew up in suburban Massachusetts, so it wasn't like I was in an area with large areas of forest, but definitely enjoyed even being in the small pockets we had and really stumbled into forestry. I saw a fire tower one day and wondered what that person did and heard that was something you, you could major in and um, landed at uh, University of Maine and, and and really didn't quite get what it was all about until I started taking classes there and, and, and really fell in love with it. And in particular, was lucky to have um, some people like Bob Seymour that certainly had influence on me um, in, in both the ecology side, but also, you know, how do you package that to, to, to really develop management strategies to get at some of the things we're talking about today. So, but it's always funny to look at your 18-year-old self and think, gosh, I, who would have known, you know, I'd be this mm-hmm. excited about all the things we do today. So, Do you spend a lot of time in a fire tower now? 
Tony? <laughs> now I would hate that. You know, I, I figured, that'd be the worst. You know, that's a good that's a good job for for authors. You know, where you want to need to sit and right. But yeah, no, no, I I like getting around. Sometimes I'm fascinated with just that interaction of like when we're young in forestry and how did, how were your family, did your families, when you were talking about being a a forester or going into forestry or even ecology, were they like, Hey, go do that. Or, Whoa, you should really go get a job where like the rest of us know about that. Well, I don't think my parents knew what ecology was when I started out in this, but my dad was big into trees and he's the one that used to haul me out into the forest all the time. And, and uh, he would dig up seedlings and replant them and go nut hunting. And so uh, he was thrilled to uh, have me working on trees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, my, my mom, I was a second grade teacher. And so I think just, that, you know, the way she gave me summer experiences, you know, enrolled me in different camps, you know, and, and so one was a nature camp and I was fortunate to get to go to a nature camp as a kid. And I think that just maybe kindled this, this desire in me to be out there and enjoying nature. But yeah, I mean, when I first started doing what I was doing, you know, again, most of my family is not in a forested setting. I remember someone saying, oh, that's cool. So you like arrange flowers. And I'm like, no, it's forestry, <laughs> not florist, floristry. You know? So yeah, it was definitely not uh, uh, something they, but, but yeah, they, they, they very much appreciate uh, what I do. And um, yeah, but, but still it was a, a stretch from, from where they were coming from. I'll have to remember that one floristry. Yeah. It's, it's like my neighbor, I, we, we talk about silviculture and, and I heard, overheard one of my neighbors saying that, oh, Brad's a jeweler because they thought I worked with silver. And he's like <laughs> silver culture or something like that. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I do. That was a really interesting uh, segue on silver culture, Brad, but uh, we actually came, came here to talk about ecological silviculture. <laughs> Um, and so maybe that's a good place for our us to start is just kind of defining that, what that is b- briefly. So maybe Brian, could you give us like just an overview of how would you describe what is both ecological forestry and ecological silviculture? Sure. Good question. Um, we do define both these things in the book. And so forestry, you know, kind of steps back and it's, it's the broader role. So ecological forestry, we define as an approach that apply, applies an understanding of the structure, function, dynamics of natural forest to understand really the integrated outputs we want from forestry, environmental, economic, social, etc. So that's forestry. And then we know that silviculture is the toolbox to implement forestry on the ground. So ecological silviculture then is really an approach that builds on that to manage forest ecosystems based on an understanding and an emulation of how they work naturally. So we call it a natural models approach. And so then the and then there's um, explicit ecological principles that I'm sure we'll get into that come from understanding that natural model. So forestry, is, ecological forestry really deals with ecosystems and what we want out of them as people. And then silviculture is, is how we do it on the ground. Tony, maybe just following up on that. So so what would be the difference then between ecological silviculture and maybe what we would consider maybe more classical silviculture? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think, you know, over the years as ecological silviculture first was gaining some traction and then now even in this day, um, you know, there's a response to a recent article that we were had in the forest resource that some would say, well, we've always done, you know, silviculture based on ecology and, and and certainly, you know, what underpins a lot of what we do in any type of um, silvicultural management is understanding um, you know, the biology of trees and kind of the ecology of forests and using that to inform decisions. But 
the real difference is that, you know, those those traditional methods that we developed, you know, centuries ago, primarily in Europe, really, really were focused on wood production. Um, and as a result, you know, so much of the ecology is, is centered on that kind of crop tree focus where we're really trying to either, you know, channel resources into specific trees or kind of create stand conditions that are optimum for the production of wood, which is a, which is a very important objective. In the context of ecological silviculture, you know, we're still, you know, managing for wood, but really we're, we're managing that ecosystem and emulating all of the elements of that ecosystem and trying to sustain those over time, um, whether they're commercial or not. And so using that natural model to really guide on um, the silvicultural interventions we do and trying to emulate both disturbance processes and successional dynamics and things that may not always be the best for like optimum economic output but ecologically are sustaining that wider uh, range of, of benefits. Does that toolbox that you use between the classical and the ecological, is it very different? Is it like a lot of overlap? And maybe we'll get into this a little bit, but. Yeah, I think I think we'll, we'll certainly probably talk about it a bit more, but, you know, it really is a, in many cases, you know, partially a philosophy. And so maybe you're applying some of the same tools, but the way you're applying them and kind of how you're thinking through the, their application might differ, but also, there are some things that aren't perfect translations between the intent of the, you know, a great example are reserves. You know, people say, well, isn't that just a clear cut with reserves? You know, you know, why call it something else in an ecological civil cultural standpoint? But, you know, the intent of reserves as historically defined in civil culture, you would ultimately harvest those trees, you know, and, and really in the context of, of ecological civil culture, often we're leaving trees out there to live out their lifespan because that's what happens naturally in forests. And, and we know from this, understanding of natural development that large old trees are a really important part of ecosystems that we often don't have in current forests and so trying to find ways to build that in so i think there is definitely like all things in civil culture you know i always joke my you know my office isn't in the medical school because we we're not inventing much new it's really uh <laughs> we're often just repackaging old tools but there are some things that aren't a perfect fit and so for communication of what we're trying to get across sometimes there's a need for either new terms or or a, a new textbook to kind of talk through how those old tools apply to mm -hmm. um these new contexts are those um tools and concepts you mentioned historically tony like uh, do they were they developed a long time ago or have some of those concepts been brought over to this country Did, and are they just evolving what does kind of that history look like i think one, one thing I, i've really reflected on recently and, and certain brian has shared in this is it is a bit odd you know we, we really do emulate um and, and and revere kind of the european origins of of, of civil culture and forestry and and in many cases, it was actually a bit of a, an odd fit, you know, taking something from Europe and applying it to the U.S. and thinking it's mm -hmm. going to work. You know, all of us know just site matters so tremendously. And why would you think something in Germany works well for, you know, La Crosse, Wisconsin? Um, and so what's ironic at that time is there were, you know, certainly the Menominee people and other indigenous people throughout, you know, North America that were, were demonstrating aspects of what we would call ecological silviculture and ecological stewardship. And we almost ignored that, you know, we did ignore it pretty, pretty hard and go after these European models as being the right way of doing things. And so it's, it's been a bit, you know, humbling to reflect, wow, you know, there actually were these models that in the oral traditions of many of these communities that already were doing aspects of emulating the natural dynamics and thinking through how to best work with the site. And, and it almost took us a century to get there with like the the Western ecological civil culture movement to, to really embrace and, and I think give some credence to some of these um, indigenous methods of, of management. And so I, I think there is a lineage there. I guess my, my rambling there is just to acknowledge that we, we very often like totally forget that there were, there was management happening in the 1800s in Wisconsin, as an example, you know, that was a pr pretty powerful stewardship 
of the land base through the Menominee and others that um, if instead of looking at you know, Germany, we might have looked in, you know, in the U.S. that those models could have had a very different trajectory for some of what we're doing on the landscape. And I, I wonder, Brian, it, it feels like in some ways that difference is almost the the difference between managing, say, a cover type and a natural community so that we kind of maybe historically use those communities but or cover types. But maybe now this ecological approach maybe takes a look more at the community aspect. I would even go broader than that and say it takes a look at the ecosystem aspect. So yeah. the whole relationship of, of plants and animals and soil and geomorphology. And just a couple of other follow-up points. Um, and you two being based in Wisconsin, I'll appreciate this. In terms of how long some of the ideas that we talk about have been around, if you go back and look at Leopold and what he said about keeping all the cogs and wheels um, as the first precaution of intelligent tinkering. He was talking about species richness, but that was because he was ahead of his time. And the, the whole um, kind of ecosystem, understanding of, of ecosystems and that science hadn't developed yet. So he's really ahead of his time in what he said. I think if he was doing his work today, he'd be talking about keep, keep, keeping all parts of an ecosystem. So that idea has been around a long time. And, and I guess then just another point about the difference between ecological silviculture and, and traditional, we, we refer to it as timber focused. And uh, just an ex as an example, is that if you start looking at what classical or traditional silviculture is based on in terms of principles, it's really agricultural ecosystems, agricultural principles. When you say cover type, think corn and think right. red pine as an analogy for corn. I'm not saying all foresters don't recognize the importance of more than the cover type, but what they're taught traditionally is really coming out of agricultural science. And we're trying to look at it from the opposite end and work towards uh, ecosystems, including production of trees as being important. And that kind of gets then to me into some of maybe some of the basic concepts and ideas around ecological silviculture and in the book you talk about some of the basic principles of that could you just either one of you or both of you kind of just talk about what are those basic principles well I, i'll start with the first one and we can take turns here so our first principle is continuity and this really is uh, stemming out of the whole idea of biological legacies um, and uh, it's the carryover of structure and composition and function from the original forest to the new forest. And all of that idea stemmed out of Mount St. Helens and looking at what happens after a catastrophic disturbance like that. It was really our colleague and co-author, Jerry Franklin, and his colleagues that, that got this idea of legacies and continuity out in front of people um, to start thinking about. So the first principle is recognizing that we don't start from scratch after a natural disturbance. There's always some aspect of that prior forest left after the disturbance. And we don't traditionally manage that way um and so we're trying to address that yeah and in the you know the second principle you know really deals with complexity and diversity and so in any silvicultural treatments we're doing we are trying to um, both maintain and enhance complexity and diversity and i think brian you made a great point about you know the traditional focus of, of early ecologists and even early ecological foresters was on on species composition um and i think you know because the the more recent 
movement towards ecological forestry came out of the Pacific Northwest that focused a lot on structure because it was, well, let's leave a Douglas fir behind and a Douglas fir forest, and that's a, a change. Um, but for our broader forests, you know, obviously all of us think about what's coming back regeneration-wise, what the species diversity is, and so both trying to enhance structural complexity. So instead of having that homogeneity and, and spacing and, and tree sizes that are obviously optimal from a more agricultural systems model, trying to have that diversity both in age classes and diversity in you know, the amount of dead wood and, and, and tree sizes, and also uh, managing for that complexity in what's out there from a species standpoint. And so not just pushing it towards you know, pure sugar maple um, or other other species compositions that, that might um, be economically ideal, but ecologically not really matching that natural model. Um, our third principle is kind of a two-part thing, and I'm going to ask Tony to deal with the second part, but it's timing. And the first part of it is that we need to wait long enough for complex structures to develop in a forest. And we often truncate that development with harvest before things like really large diameter trees or, or declining and decadent trees that'll form cavities uh, develop. So part of it is allowing enough time for things that develop slowly um, to be able to uh, be part of the forest. The second part of this really is basing interventions on ecological cues. And I don't, Tony's thinks about this better than I do, if he can address that. Yeah, and I think a, a pretty straightforward and actually excellent example for, you know, both the, you know, Lake States region, but also in the Pacific Northwest, which really was an inspiration for some of the thinking around this is just the use of extended rotations, you know, with, with red pine and, and, and likewise for, for Douglas fir. And so certainly from an economic model, you know, that, that a rotation is going to be you know, well before ecologically, those forests have developed some of those um, structures that were more typical of natural red pine systems. And so by, by you know, going beyond that, um, what either optimum economic or even optimum biological rotation age based on peak MAI, you know, allowing those forests to develop both the kind of large tree densities, you know, dead wood, decadent trees, certainly well-developed understory layers, you know, all of those will take, you know, a longer time frame than, than what we would base um, on a, on a more traditional civil cultural approach. And so using kind of ecological cues around like structural and compositional development, as opposed to kind of optimizing um, production. Our last principle, this is one that goes upscale and it's probably harder for most foresters to, to think about or address, but it's really context. And it's recognizing that your stand scale actions accumulate in landscapes to have consequences um, ecologically. So um, it would be things that matter to wildlife species. So how, how much edge do you have? How much connectivity do you have? How are you influencing adjacent ecosystems, particularly aquatic and wetland ecosystems, by your action on the ground with 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 forestry and you know it's hard to address in our complex ownership landscapes uh, we don't have people always coordinating with each other but really that's the idea is is what you do in one place matters in terms of accumulates to matter in terms of how the landscape functions i know brad and i have had this conversation we just don't do that very well as foresters because we often work at the stand level and and then just the complexities of trying to work at a landscape level with the ownership patterns that we have is difficult. But yeah, I mean, do you do you think that the just kind of our stand by stand level approach is doesn't work well 
for that particular aspect? I, th I think it doesn't work well if the adjacent stand is under different ownership and management and they're doing something completely different that disrupts sort of the patch structure and continuity and um, of habitat for you know particular organisms. Uh, so there, there's that kind of problem that's really hard to address with patchy sort of ownerships. But, um, you know, people have made some progress in terms of communicating at broader landscapes across ownerships that, to try to coordinate that. So you guys have taken these, so, you, so we have these principles, and you've expanded upon them for like looking at natural models and some archetypes of how we might consider like plugging in or looking at ecosystems that we might be working with. And so, so in, in your most recent book, you've defined four archetypes. What are those? Okay, so we have four. And we really debated quite a bit, the, the group of authors, about how to do this. Some of it is driven by what we worked in and what we were comfortable with, what we knew the most about. But also, we felt like the four examples we have cover a really broad range of forests globally. So one is, um, the first one is forests initiated by infrequent severe disturbance. So you think fire largely or, you know, a severe windstorm. The second one is a low severity fire disturbance regime. So these systems like ponderosa pine or longleaf pine in particular that might be burning every two or three years in some low intensity way, low severity way. Then we have gap scale wind disturbance, largely, think northern hardwoods. And then we have something that uh, uh, took us a while to really figure out that this was a separate archetype, but we call it a mixed severity disturbance. So where you're having both within, within stands and among stands uh, variation in a disturbance regime. It's probably largely fire, but it could be wind, it could be uh, pathogens or insects as well. Yeah, and maybe just playing with those a little bit. So, so you mentioned some, right? So so thinking about uh, forest dominated, or so the first one you mentioned was uh, infrequent severe disturbance. And so what's a good, ex so you mentioned, did you mention an example of that one? I didn't, but Tony Tony um, addressed it uh, just prior to that. It really came out of understanding Douglas for Western Hemlock yeah. Forest. That was the, the sort of the origination of people starting to think about that and what, what, what happens with that kind of disturbance. Here in the Lake States, a really nice one is jack pine. Yeah, um, you know, jack pine is not a long life species, and the forest isn't uh, particularly doesn't. It develops an old forest stage, but it's not like northern hardwoods in terms of its length. But it is one that's generally disturbed by catastrophic, infrequent, over the forest type uh, severe disturbance. Are some of those? And I'm sure you probably had this in your debate you guys had around this, but like I'm just trying to think. Some of those systems have both wind and fire as a disturbance pattern. And maybe that's where the mixed severity comes in. I'm not sure. It, it is. And so the, the example for the lake states that you know I work on, so I'm pretty excited about, are, you would call it red pine, but it's really a red pine dominated mixed species woodland ecosystem. And we have it across the northern lake states, or we did um, in that condition. So that's a funny one because I don't think 20, 25 years ago, people understood exactly how that ecosystem worked. They thought infrequent severe disturbance, uh, so leaving even age stands. And that really came out of a misinterpretation of Heinzelman's work in the Boundary Waters. He never said that, that red pine dominated systems were uh, driven by this infrequent severe disturbance 
but it was interpreted that way and it translated down over decades into people actually thinking that even aged clear cut with planting actually emulated the natural disturbance regime of that ecosystem. What we know, and it, it's our work, but it's other people's work in Wisconsin and Michigan, um, is that that system was really driven by uh, pretty frequent fire, but less than stand replacing, as well as wind, as well as our malaria, which we think mm. of as a negative uh, disturbance, but it was a natural um, gap uh, forming kind of disturbance in that ecosystem. So it's really more complex than we ever thought. I think people get that now in terms of how that system worked, but I can tell you 20 years ago they didn't. There was a lot of opposition to thinking about um, managing red pine differently than what we push for. It's, it's kind of interesting then to take your principles and apply them to each of these archetypes that you have. And so, so thinking about those, I know like uh, the, the second principle was complexity, things of that nature. So would all of these tend toward making stands more complex or would some of them make stands less complex over time? Yeah, I, th I think it depends on the, the ecosystem. I think, you know, compositionally, you know, some of those frequent fire ecosystems over time, you know, could become um, close to monospecific, but spatially, um, you know, you know, the structure of those forests gets quite complex, the, 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 even the within tree complexity in terms of um, branch forms and, and levels of decay and, 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 and distribution. So even a ponderosa pine forest that, you know, compositionally um, over time or even long leaf that may seem just from a tr the tree layer, not not tremendously complex, and both in the understory environments so the micro environments that are being maintained, you know, that 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 long term history of these these fires would really push it towards a much more complex spatial arrangement. And I, you know, those that are familiar with some of the work in the, the West, you know, a lot of the strategies they're using are really trying to create this, this mix of individual trees and clumps of trees and openings that really would reflect that um, kind of mosaic of, of spatial conditions and, and, and you know, um, resource conditions created um, by those regimes. Northern hardwoods, you know, that that's one where if we only had uh, fine scale disturbances, which I think is was often historically the model we emulated with our our selection management, you definitely could push that pretty strongly towards um, you know single species uh, or, or or maybe mostly a sugar maple or, or or beech in our part of the world on, on less productive sites. But that natural development model really showed, and again, we really owe a lot to um, the work that Craig Lorimer and others have done. You know, documenting those those what we call mesoscale disturbances, you know, not stand level disturbance events, but a three acre or four acre blowdown patch that still has a lot of trees surviving, but it's big enough to you know, create the environment that yellow birch or some of these other species need to persist in that landscape. That over time, you know, you'd, you'd maintain this, this co compositional complexity and, and those ecosystems, it is always fascinating to see these like mid tolerant trees that are dominant or a main component of these old growth forests. And so, um, they've been able to sustain themselves um, in competition with some very shade tolerant trees, which really speaks to um, how that natural model really created the range of niche spaces they need, um, both both from a you know from a canopy opening size, but also those tip up mounds, well decayed wood, all those things that really come um, under the long term history of those disturbances. I, I would add to that just real quickly that this uh, this idea of complexity and comparing it, it you got to be careful what you're comparing. Um, and it's really the natural forest ecosystem to its managed counterpart of that ecosystem. So talking about a comparison of old growth um, northern hardwoods, which in our part of the world is probably the most structurally complex thing we have, 
and comparing that to Jack Pine, this is, it's not really a valid comparison. It's really Jack Pine compared to, say, a red pine plantation. And when you make that comparison, that an, that an old Jack Pine woodland is is very complex in a relative sense compared to a to a red pine plantation. So that's really how we need to make those kinds of comparisons. I think that's a really good point, Brian. I I was just thinking about that less complex in the Jack Pine scenario where we're managing very open view sheds, for instance, for sharp tail grouse or something like that. And so maybe the tree layer becomes less structurally complex, but overall that the vegetation is probably very complex in those systems. So it's- And there's, there's spatial heterogeneity and there's dead wood. There's, there's it, it, the example we use in the book, which isn't relevant to everyone in the lake states, but it's long lake pine woodlands. You think of them as being uh, pretty simple, but relative to a loblolly pine plantation, they're they're highly complex. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the comparison you want to make there. And then some people would argue, they'll say, well, a long lake pine ecosystem that's had fire exclusion becomes very complex with vines and understory hardwoods, et cetera. That's not a good comparison either because that's an unhealthy ecosystem. It's supposed to have fire in it every two to three years. If it doesn't, it's not functioning right. So you don't want to make that kind of comparison either. Yeah. I I know, Greg, we've had that discussion with mesification and say some of our oak stands where we get lots more complexity, but it's really more that appropriate complexity that we're really looking for. But we always have to try and strive for that. So it's, it's a discussion we've had in the past too. So I'm curious. So I think these, I'm really, I think these are fantastic. And you guys mentioned uh, Leopold earlier, right? Cogs and wheels. So some of our stands don't have all the cogs and wheels anymore, right? Or they have extra cogs thrown in, you know, like we get invasive species or other plants coming in. So we get these novel conditions, right? Or degraded, you know, rogues gallery forest. Can we still apply or still think about them in, in this context? I think um, in this part of the world, or maybe most parts of the world, we're often talking about restoration when we talk about applying ecological silviculture, recognizing we have simplified structurally and uh, and compositionally forests that we're working with. And so uh, the approaches, I think, are, are generally applicable in that you're still going to be wanting to do things to enhance spatial heterogeneity in that in that. Uh, novel condition where you're going to want to be opening up in a heterogeneous way resource opportunities to get the right species back into that system. Um, so, and we, so again, we do address this a bit that it's really restoration that that we need to deal with first in much of the lake states forest. Yeah, and I think just to follow up, I mean, it, just like any other application of silviculture, it's objectives driven. And so, what are your objectives for that you know novel space and is the goal to increase, you know, structural and compositional complexity in that forest without it maybe reflecting a natural model, or are you going to really be um, pushing hard for, you know, restoring um, certain species or emulating, you know, certain processes? And so I think, um, you know, that toolbox and these approaches, you know, fit that scenario, but in in many cases, like how you push that system, whether, you know, whether it's just you want to have a complex forest that's, you know, in a better condition than this, you know, plantation invaded by invasives in the understory, you know, and so how do you get that to a, you know, situation that might provide more, you know, habitat opportunities and, and potentially, 
um, future commercial harvest opportunities? Or do you really want to kind of restore the, you know, red pine woodland that was on that site and, and kind of work towards that? And so I think, you know, you can go both both ways, but part of it will be kind of the objectives for that site. And importantly, you know, what you're you know, either the landowner or that agency is trying to achieve. I'm curious. So sometimes I think it's like you guys described, it's fairly obvious, like we're looking at a jack pine stand and that's going to be that, you know, infrequent, severe, but foresters, they're going to be, we always want them to take things away from, from what we do. in, in some of these discussions, are there good places or what's the best way to define uh, a cover type or a community or whatever they're working with in the context of those four archetypes? Well, um, I mean, there's different resources out there that, uh, that people know about already. And here in Minnesota, we have this just phenomenal ecological classification system that uh, this, the DNR in Minnesota has developed. And there are uh, silvicultural guides that go along with each of the different, um, they call them native plant communities here, but it's very similar to habitat type. And uh, they're very detailed and they give a forester a great um, idea of composition, structure, and development over time. And so that's a great resource. And I, I think that think similar things um, exist in Wisconsin and Michigan as well that, that really get at understanding that natural model. But the funny thing is uh, about this is um, I, I find that foresters really know their, their forest ecosystem pretty well. And they understand generally how it's probably supposed to work and how it does work. But oftentimes the environment they find themselves in kind of constrain what they're what they can do relative to silviculture and a natural model. And I, it's not a criticism, it's just institutional inertia or local markets or whatever it happens to be that sometimes pushes them away from what they know to be the natural model. Yeah, I I completely agree with Brian on that, and it it is amazing, you know, to see just how important like site has been, you know, eco, the ecolog ecological concept of site, you know, in the history of silviculture, you know, dating back to Toomey's textbook in the twenties, you know, that really was focused, but it was very much on you know what the potential of that site is for vegetation, uh, but but wasn't always translating it then into how do you emulate the 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 dynamics of that site over time in terms of the forest community, and so I think really it does start with um, habitat typing and understanding the site. And again, as Brian said, people, foresters know that, but it's, it's having the flexibility and, and, to, and the opportunity to um, emulate what would make sense for that site from a disturbance perspective and a stand developmental perspective. Yeah. And I always, we talk with our, our new foresters, especially, you know, foresters are good observers overall. That's kind of a, a skill that you have to have. And local foresters really start to develop that local knowledge about how those forests work, kind of what you were saying, Brian, and just developing that experience, um, I think, can help develop that understanding of what those disturbance models were like in their area. One, one of the things that we try to do in Silvacast is to help those foresters maybe walk away from these episodes with ideas that they can implement on the ground. And so I was thinking about what both of you said about ecological silviculture is this toolbox that we use to uh, emulate these disturbance models. Are there particular tools in that toolbox that you think that we're either not utilizing or maybe underutilizing? Um, so just thinking about, I think, some of those basic principles that we went through earlier 
and the classical silvicultural systems that we use, are there particular things that you think we should be adding to our repertoire in managing these forests? I can jump in on the first one. So we're getting better about this in this part of the world, but legacy management, um, con so continuity of structure at harvest, we still see examples where what is left tends to be smaller diameter trees of species that that the forester may not care about. Again, we're getting better at this. It's taken maybe two decades to start feeling that people understand this. But really, I think what we need to be thinking about are uh, larger trees, trees that are, are um, necessarily, they may be of commercial value and be nice to take them, but they may have ecological importance as well. And another aspect of that, so not just favoring smaller trees, um, with retention. Another aspect of that is, is leaving declining or decadent trees. We think of those traditionally as being bad, uh, negative in terms of the economics of the stand, but they're really important ecologically. Yeah, and I think it's a that's a great one, Brian, because historically some of the, you know, maybe European models of, of what some may say is ecological silviculture, like continuous cover forestry, I mean, the emphasis was to kind of increase the and maintain the cover of vigorous, um, valuable trees, you know, and really taking out declining trees. And I think we all know what the long-term outcomes have been of, you know, single tree selection, where we're always prioritizing the removal of the unacceptable growing stock, the higher risk individuals makes perfect economic sense. But ecologically, you know, those are the trees that are really already serving pretty key functions as, as declining trees for cavity nesters, et cetera. And so I think that that piece around retention is just a, it's just a different way of looking at the forest where so much of what we've done Historically in forestry is on, you know, the emphasis on on what we're removing. And now it's more of like really putting equal emphasis on what's being left and not just left for the next 10 years, but left permanently, you know, on that site to develop those structures that just really aren't um, contained. And I think there's often this knee jerk that, well, if I just leave things behind after a clear cut, you know, I've done ecological silviculture and that's not the point. You know, I'd mentioned earlier, you know, when you have a three acre gap, there are trees still alive in that three acre gap. You know, when, when you even have a small um, canopy disturbance. There's occasionally a tree or two surviving in that 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 persist, and so integrating that retention beyond just the, maybe the caricature that people often paint of the Douglas fir clear cut that now has a few scattered Douglas fir in it. That that's that's certainly where maybe the 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 evolution of of ecological silviculture took a major leap um, into the mainstream. But but really, it's it's, it's applying that idea of continuity um, in, in in all of your actions on the landscape, and I think. You know, as I mentioned earlier, there there are traditional silvicultural systems like adding with reserves to what you're doing. But again, the, the intent of that historically was to then remove that tree um, at, a, at a future date because it was it grown into a larger diameter individual. And so some of the trees that Brian described are not the trees you'd retain. They grow bigger for, for commercial purposes. Those are the trees that have high ecological value. And I think that another piece for, for foresters is that we, we have really... You know, many of the regeneration methods we've traditionally used have been focused on creating a fairly uniform regeneration environment and kind of securing kind of the, the same species across the site. And um, I was the poor soul you dragged in to talk about irregular shelter woods a while back. Um, and, you know, the, the reason why irregular shelter woods are now this this thing a lot of people have exciting, excitement about, at least in kind of the north north temperate forests and even boreal systems, is that they do really emulate aspects of what we're talking about with ecological silviculture, that heterogeneity and spatial environment, you know, gaps and thinned areas and, and unthinned areas and creating kind of that almost this these micro stands within a stand that maybe administratively 30 years ago would sound like a nightmare without some sort of um, GIA 
GIS-based app on your phone. But now, even with technology, some of these things are um, can be operationalized pretty quickly um, in the landscape. And so trying to introduce that spatial heterogeneity um, into, into forest because we know that's such a hallmark of most natural systems is there's a lot of heterogeneity, tree densities, openings, all of their different attributes. We often have discussions about dispersed versus aggregated and how those might apply in situations like this. Do you guys have any thoughts on how those might apply in different systems or just any ideas about that? So we, we talk about this quite a bit in the book. Um, it is easy to understand that concept in a forest that's characterized by infrequent severe disturbance. So you have that disturbance, but we know that um, there's there's trees left behind, living trees. Sometimes they're dispersed, sometimes they're aggregate. And that's where the whole idea of variable retention came from, varying the spatial pattern of, of what you leave behind, varying the species you leave behind, varying the size clashes you leave behind. It's probably less intuitive um, to think about it in some of these other archetypes, uh, but really the mixed severity one, we do we do address that as well. So the retention may be occurring at a large patch scale if it's less than stand replacing natural disturbance. So you have a fire coming through, surface fire, it blows out big openings in the canopy, and you need to start thinking about um, the retention aspect of legacies within that opening. So the concept still applies, you just have to be a little bit more creative in terms of how you think about it. And Tony wrote the archetype model for Northern Hardwoods, the gap-based thing, and, and he addresses that um, as well in that, if you want to chime in, Tony. Yeah, and I think the, the the real tension, for lack of a better term, is that and I, and I would argue that in some cases, maybe where things maybe got missed in translation, some of the earlier uh, pushes for ecological silviculture is that we care a lot in silviculture about regeneration, you know, and, and not just regeneration, but like what species. And so one of the, the real tricks there with retention um, in general is making sure that you're balancing the regeneration needs of the species you're interested in on the site. And so when we're now talking about a gap, I mean, we're keeping a tree in that gap um, as a structure, you know, recognizing that you're effectively reducing the size of that gap um, in terms of light availability and so forth. And, and so either using more regular gap sizes that almost have kind of retention on the edge. So you're, you're not really putting that into the center of the, the gap, but then as you kind of work in the stand over time, that, that, that kind of node of, of retained trees remains permanent or putting, you know, legacy trees dispersed throughout that gap, similar to again, what you'd see for surviving trees falling wind, but making the gap large enough that you actually are getting the light environment you need to kind of compensate for that gap closing, both from the, the edges as well as um, from those those you know retention trees in the middle. And so we we really you know I think have always thought thought about group selection and some of those approaches is like these very clean openings, but you know really expanding the size of the opening, but but put like leaving some trees in the middle of that opening to serve that legacy component. I think is really critical. Um, but as I was saying, like making sure that the yellow birch or other species you're excited about regenerating are getting the light they need to be competitive um, in that environment and the disturbance they need. So try and make sure you can scarify and create those seed beds that tip ups and other things would have provided in that natural model. Yeah. That was my earlier question when you were talking about how this retention works in these gap based systems. And that's exactly what I was thinking about. We're always focused on regeneration, right? In those openings like group selection, we typically have cutting all stems down to two inches within that. Um, and we're just focused on that regeneration 
But uh, I think you address that really well, Tony, and just how to balance the retention within those versus the regeneration. And I think uh, maybe some of those irregular, as you said, irregular systems or regular group opening sizes or shapes probably allow you more flexibility with that. Absolutely. And I think, again, we, we, we want... And yeah, my bias is my, my students know it by the first day. So I mean, I love yellow birch as a species, you know, we want lots of it, but if we look at a, you know, old growth systems, it wasn't 60% of the composition, you know, it was, it was 30 or, you know, percent or 40 at most. And so that, that is really reflecting that long-term history of gaps that have been large enough for that species. But to, to expecting it to come back in every quarter acre opening we make, you know, probably is unrealistic. So kind of almost focusing those regeneration efforts and these larger gaps with retention might be more emulative of, of the natural model that followed in those, those forests over time. The other thing I want to go back to, too, is something you mentioned, Brian, because it's a term that is out there more recently, and that's variable retention harvesting. And I'm not sure if everybody's sort of familiar with that. Like, is that a regeneration harvest where you're really just focused on variable retention aspects within that? Versus something like variable density thinning, which I think has been around a little longer, maybe, you know, came out earlier with some of Jerry Franklin's work. Yeah, uh, really good question. And you might be surprised at the um, uh, rigor of debate (laughs) over that within uh, Uh circles of people that Tony and I interact with. So this is is timely. Um, Yeah, variable retention harvesting really focused around a, a regeneration level disturbance um, and, and harvest that the goal was ultimately to regenerate a new cohort of trees in that stand. Um, whereas variable density thinning uh, really is, is something applied to established stands. So just as you would thinning, I'll you know, think thinning at 20 years or 30 years in, in spruce plantation or whatever it happens to be. Uh, the difference, so it's a it's a intermediate treatment um, with the idea being you use it to kind of jumpstart the development of structural heterogeneity and maybe getting um, some comp- compositional diversity in, in terms of tree species within that stand. Where it gets a little fuzzy is most people's uh, definition of variable density thinning includes larger openings where you would actually be hoping to get regeneration occurring in there. So, you know, some people um, don't like uh, that terminology because thinning is not a regeneration activity, whereas it is in that take, it could be as a component in that take on variable density thinning. So leave it to nerdy silviculturists to (laughs) actually sit around and debate these things. But I think uh, just like you said, Brian, sometimes I see folks using terminology like variable density thinning and regeneration is actually part of the prescription. And I'm like, well, okay, what exactly what are we doing? So we could have a whole nother podcast on this about the the need to think about uh, new terminology or different terminology in silviculture. And Tony and I have been um, uh, schooled over our our kind of push towards um, not recognizing the traditional terminology um, as well as we should. But, you know, there's some things that have evolved with the ecological forestry that just demands new names and new terms and the old stuff doesn't cover it all the 
time. I think that's part of the excitement, right? Like new terms, if we're trying to convey things for foresters 50 years from now, as long as they know exactly what we're trying to talk about, you know, maybe that's the most important thing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there may have been an opportunity missed when, again, new ecological civil culture was first being popularized. I keep saying that because, you know, as all of you know, there were, there were elements of these, these concepts around for, um, well, for centuries, if we look at the traditional models of indigenous peoples, but also even in the Western um, literature. But I think when, when, you know, in the Douglas fir region, variable retention harvests and these approaches that were very ecological and focused were coming on board. There was almost a desire to be different from traditional terms in a way to almost distinguish. And it, it led to this almost this this dichotomy where, where like the civil culture community kind of closed ranks. We already have clear cutting with reserves. We already have, you know, shelter with reserves. We have these these concepts. We don't need, you know, th- these ecologists over here are creating these new things and they don't really understand us. And I think there could have been a more productive conversation at that time to talk through, you know, maybe we need like permanent legacy retention instead of using the word reserves, you know? So we're really talking about like clear cutting with permanent legacy retention. We are leaving those trees out there and we're doing it in a way that um, is deliberate for ecological purposes. And likewise, um, maybe choose something other than thinning to add to the end of variable density um, to to convey that we're doing a regeneration method in most cases. And and so to Brian's point, um, and he knows, I think, you know, I, I feel so fortunate to go work with them. You know, we have a good um, synergy around this as someone that really was steeped in the civil culture terminology that, you know, there's a, there are these moments where we're like, you know, how, what level of heartburn do I have with kind of going beyond the traditions? And I, I think we've really come to this point where most importantly, operationally, variable retention harvest and variable density thinning seem to translate really well. Like people get it and it seems to really help them take these concepts and put it on the ground, which is what we want. And so to me, that speaks to this having some traction with like operational practice that maybe it's time for us to evolve the the terminology a bit, at least for those two, to make sure people are comfortable with what they're talking about and 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 kind of add versus just say, ah, oh, it's just like the same thing we did in Bavaria in eighteen fifty. Well, <laughs> like they, they weren't thinking about biodiversity in eighteen fifty. You know, maybe they were, but not not right. in terms of this. So just trying yeah. to kind of advance it. Well, we'll leave it to you guys to come up with a new term for irregular shelterwood. Yeah. It seems like we never uh, understand what an irregular shelterwood is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, which is scary. It just becomes the catch-all for anything somebody's doing. That's a regular shelterwood, you know. Yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> I don't think we have time for that one on this show, Brad. So I'm just kind of uh, circling maybe back to, again, those tools that foresters can walk away with. And one of the things, a recent conversation Brad and I have had, along with others um, that we work with, is deadwood and retention of deadwood in stands and how we go about doing that or do we do that? And I know by looking at maybe some of the FIA data, we have, you know, a deficit of deadwood in a lot of our stands. I remember from our carbon episode, actually Wisconsin's on the low end compared to Minnesota, for example, in that race. So is that an aspect that foresters should be thinking about more heavily? I certainly think so. Uh, I like, if I have a group of foresters out in the woods, I'll have them look around and I'll say what's missing. <laughs> and if they don't say dead wood, then they're not thinking about this right. Because in our managed forests, we tend to not allow trees to develop and die naturally and stay on the ground. Large dead wood, whether it be snags or logs on the ground. So, uh, and it seems to me like it's a pretty easy thing to address. One, leave 
as much dead wood that might be there during a harvest or a, a intermediate activity, whatever it happens to be. But the other is, and we have work that addresses, and I know some people do this, is deliberate deadwood creation at mm -hmm. at harvest or at um, a thinning, either being you know topping a tree or felling a tree. Um, so so thinking about that lack of larger deadwood uh, is certainly something we push people to think about. Yeah, we, we, you know, I can't take credit for it. You know, Mark Harmon was the one that coined it, but this idea of morticulture, you know, you know, thinking about not just the, the living, um, you know, maybe that could be your Halloween uh, podcast for the Silvercast, the, the Morticast. <laughs> Good idea, but Tony. The, uh, <laughs> but the, yeah, the, the, the other, other, and I think it, it gets back at this idea of continuity and, and complexity that um, both leaving things to die, right? That's, that's certainly benefiting the deadwood pool, but also, as you pointed out, Greg, um, whether it's Wisconsin or Vermont or, or, you know, Oregon, if you look at just that average amount of deadwood in the forest, it's it's below what naturally, you know, would be out there. And, and so there's that trade-off again, you know, economically, we can't leave every every tree out there, you know, like an old growth northern hardwood stand might have seven to nine cords per acre. And you can't just go out there and leave seven to nine cords per acre. But I think, you know, there, there's the opportunity to kind of set some targets that might be, well, I'd like to over time approach half that or or, or three quarters of that, and and so the the, the reason I'm, I mentioned morticulture, it's the same way. You're not just like dropping wood now and checking the box. You know, we know this was a dynamic mosaic of different decay classes, different um, levels of, of a decline, and so really managing for that um, deadwood continuum over time requires thinking about it at each entry and, and how am I influencing it. It could just be dropping coal or, or do, doing things that might economically, you know, with our, depending on where you are, markets for for lower grade materials, it could be an opportunity just to actually achieve some silviculture um, without having to skid the wood out um, and, and, and leaving it on the site. But it's a, it's a Brian's point. It's often something we, we're so used to our forests not having much of it. So right. that, you know, so when you do go into an old stand, it's, you know, you're, um, you know, your torso feels it like stepping over things m much of the day. So it's very different. And I'm curious um, with that and thinking about the archetypes again. So that probably would vary among each of the different systems. And how would that have played out? And I'm always, and I think about this in my mind. So how would that have played out with like, say these frequent low severity fire systems? Would there have been a lot of wood on the ground or would there have been maybe standing stuff that would be continually coming down. I, I've always had a little less of a grasp on that. So I, I spent some time uh, in Southwest Georgia working in Longleaf Pine back early in my career, which is, you know, the classic frequent fire forest. Yep. And there's a, a, it's all relative to where you're at, uh, but there's a fair amount in old growth, mature longleaf pine woodlands of dead wood, both snags mm -hmm. and wood on the ground. It's pretty interesting that, that those logs on the ground actually influence the fire regime. So they act as fire breaks. You'll have a different mm -hmm. plant community on one side of the log versus the other. So it's mm -hmm. it's all relative. It's not anything like, you know, old growth northern hardwood forest in terms of the volume or biomass of dead wood. But, but in a relative sense, it's important. Yeah. Yeah, and we, we just uh, did an outreach pamphlet on kind of restoring old growth structure. That was a reboot of an older one. And we looked at like different benchmarks for, for forest types. And yeah, the oak type, the, the data that's out there, you know, it's a much, much wider range of, of, of you know, dead wood volumes. But but the snag component, you know, can be quite low, but also quite high, just given the nature of those systems. So I, I think you're right, Brad. It's a, it's, it's you know, as Brian pointed out, like there, there, there's, deadwood out there, but maybe not as abundant as you'd see other types. And so managing 
um, and of course thinking about fuel loading too, you, you know, you have to balance like how many trees are dropping. And so it wouldn't make a lot of sense in some of those forests either. And Greg, we talk about this all the time. Maybe there's an opportunity. Well, it's kind of like making lemonade when you have lemons, but maybe there's that opportunity to think about this because we're dealing with emerald ash borer and ash dying in tons of stands. So we're actually seeing this influx of dead trees, which just maybe how do we treat that? And then how do we take it forward? But this gives us maybe a, a, a new approach to kind of thinking about it too. Hey guys, uh, can I have a pause? It sounds like someone's at our door and my son's not answering. Yep. yep. Okay, I'll, son's not I'll, answering. <laughs> I'll do this as quick as I can. Those dang children. I know. <laughs> they never you, do what they're supposed to do. I give you one job. <laughs> <laughs> so I know Tony and Brian, both of you are heavily involved in uh, climate issues with forest, um, climate adaptation and so on. And Brad and I have been talking uh, a lot about this, obviously, um, in terms of both our traditional silvicultural systems and our natural disturbance models are kind of based on past history. And now we're facing some uncertainties with a unique future, maybe. And so my question is, do you think ecological silviculture tools and techniques can help us deal with some of those uncertainties within those forests? So I would just say that there are some aspects of this that they're very much applicable. And one of the main ones I point people to is most of our forests had more than one tree species in them. Even, even ecosystems that we think of as not being particularly rich in tree species, these, they always had more than one. And, and so, for example, these, this ecosystem we call red pine really had like 11 or 12 tree species in it um, historically. So managing for species richness, whether it be restoring it, if it's gone or sustaining it, if it's there is really important because some of those species are going to be better adapted to future climate. It may not all be, but something in that mix of native species is likely to be. And, you know, the climate models uh, that predict um, habitat suitability show that um, for, for different ecosystems. So managing for diversity is is important in a climate adaptation sense. Yeah, and I think going beyond the, the the species point, you know, even within species, we've certainly um, been part of work, and there's other work that shows, you know, young trees versus old trees, small trees versus big trees, you know, have very different responses to drought or defoliators or, or bark beetles, and so that structural complexity we've been talking about, on top of the the species complexity, you know, really is giving you that that portfolio of responses in that ecosystem that. Um, you know, under an uncertain climate, it's giving you many different ways for that that forest to to, to adapt. And I, and I think, you know, when we look at Western forests where fire is kind of dominant, you know, even this idea of trying to restore some of that spatial heterogeneity um, in tree spacing and structures, again, you know, into the future, we might not be able to support the same trees, uh, support the same densities of trees in some of these sites. But by creating and introducing some of that historic kind of woodland-like structure, often call it kind of restoration for adaptation, you're lowering densities, so you're 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 increasing resource availability to trees for for drought um, resistance. But you're also creating that mosaic of fuels and densities that really will influence microclimates and fuel behavior across the site. And so, I think ecological silviculture. I don't necessarily view it as the the be all end all for adaptation, but it's a really good. Um, scaffolding to start on and then kind of introduce maybe more novel techniques within. And so 
I'm doing, you're trying to emulate a range of gap sizes that would have historically been um, created via wind disturbance. And so now I'm opportunistically maybe planting some mid-tolerant, you know, trees in those larger openings like red oak or some of those species that are expected to do better. And so I'm still putting them maybe ecologically in those spaces, in those stands where they naturally would have recruited, but I'm thinking a bit about the future while also retaining key parts of the past that are still there, like, like large living trees that for all we know, might show some novel be behavior and dynamics that we're not aware of. And so I think the notion of completely throwing out our knowledge of the past because things are different now, um, you know, it, I always get worried when we're so absolute about these things because we, we want to make sure we're still retaining trees. Um, even the ash example, yeah, those the ash might be largely doomed, but it's still a nice big piece of dead wood. That forest won't have a tree that large for a long time. And so keeping those structural elements that they can be really important for different species to use as like micro refugia as well as just to keep sustaining the, those key functions forward and so if nothing else it's a good bridge towards maybe more novel silviculture into the future but but really um using those principles around heterogeneity you know looking for complexity and heterogeneity and, and our management continuity as well as thinking about that that landscape scale context we're creating yeah and i think it's a little what brian mentioned earlier too it's these concepts are really ecosystem based. And so trying to keep that overall ecosystem health and function, hopefully will help us with all of that change or uncertainties that happen to it. Agreed. You know? I think it's an excellent follow-up, Greg, because it is kind of strange um, as someone that was schooled and got excited about getting into silviculture and forestry during like the the formative years of, you know, the big experiments to look at, you know, how do you, how does small mammals and, and fungi and everything else respond to retention and all these things. And so we were focusing not just on how does regeneration respond, which is of course the most charismatic part of a forest, but also um, other things as we've shifted to climate change, it's like, what tree do I need to grow out there? What species is going to do well? And we've almost kind of ignored like, well, what ecosystem yeah. process, you know, am I trying to sustain right. into the future? And so that's an excellent, you know, point that, really you know, emulating and, and kind of building upon this notion that we're still trying to su sustain some important both ecologically but also cultural functions from our forests what adaptation strategies are going to get us there um you know and, and seem to have most promise into the future i think is a, yeah. is a key area of focus so brian last question um if some of our listeners are interested in learning more about this or reading the book and what's the best place to get a copy well brad Brian can't really respond because he had a snow emergency, just so oh. people know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's right. So Tony's going to have to respond oh, to that right. one. Okay. Yeah. Th thanks, Greg, for, you know, it's been, it's been a while since I've been uh, hanging around with Brad in Wisconsin, but, uh, but <laughs> Tony, Brian, there's, they're like synonyms. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the, um, <laughs> in terms of the book, it's, it's available, uh, through Waveland press, uh, which, but also on Amazon. Um, and, we are just as a as a teaser. Um, so so one of the key parts of the book was really, um, you know, to really go beyond just laying out the principles, but also give some examples of how this might apply to the different archetypes. And so, of course, I got the best of the be archetypes and you know the northern hardwoods. Um, but th that's only so great for the f the few ecosystems we covered. And so what we're doing now is a follow up book that um, actually uses authors from different parts of the country, different parts of the um, the globe to really um, develop an ecological civil cultural systems text mm. that really looks at, you know, oak um, systems or, um, you know, Deldivian rainforest down in Chile or boreal forests in Quebec. And how would you 
um, kind of work through and, and kind of present civil cultural systems based on these principles for those forest types. And so it'll be a, hopefully a, a useful companion book. Um, it probably won't be out until um, about six months or so from now. We're just kind of compiling the final drafts, but hopefully will be useful to the broader listenership uh, if, if their forest type isn't covered. Um, as someone that's, a, again, a Northern Harwood person, you know, a lot of these concepts were very Doug Fur focused. And so really, really kind of trying to localize mm-hmm. them to our, and of course, Craig Lorimer did so much to, to help move that along yes. for, for us. But mm-hmm. so anyhow, that, that'll be a future book, but the current one is, is available um, on Amazon um, and, and also through Waveland Press. Well, that that next project sounds really cool. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know how you guys find time. You're involved in a ton of different things, but I appreciate you taking the time for us to um, talk with us and kind of wrap our heads around ecological silviculture. And Brad, I just was poking fun at you because actually I needed an <laughs> excuse to explain why Brian had um, step out for a moment. He was actually having some snow issues um, <laughs> at home. We won't go into details, <laughs> but uh, Tony, I really want to pre- um, say we really appreciate you coming and joining us yeah. again, uh, along with yep. Brian. I think that was a really, really interesting conversation. People get a lot out of. Yep. I think we learn something every time. No, always fun to be with both of you. So I appreciate the opportunity. And we will see you when you come back to Wisconsin. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, etc., and share them with our listeners. So let me get out the Dropbox here. Um, let me get this open. Uh, Brad, uh, the coffee can is empty again. What the heck? We've I know. Been, we've been imploring. Come on, guys. We need questions. Anything. We'll take it. it. It could be anything. I know. Listeners have great ideas to share. We just need to give them the right incentive, Brad. All right. So what I'll do is I've got a batch of pickled purslane. You guys are going to love <laughs> this stuff. It goes great with a bush light. You're going to Love it. So, <laughs> oh boy, I'm not sure sending listeners pickled weeds from your garden will be a real motivating factor. We're going to work on this issue. So, let's just stay tuned. Yeah. So, we do need some stuff for the Dropbox. So, send us a message. Okay, everyone, that's a wrap. You know, every season, This podcast sounds better to me. Every season, your hearing gets worse. Every season, you're looking for a purse? No. Was that a hearse? Uh, 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 Oh. Please stop. The The booth! booth. (laughs) In any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvercast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Megan Espy, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs>